Welcome to the first episode of Commonwealth Ground. I'm one of your co-hosts, Victoria Sintar Churchill. And I'm Jackie Gary. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today with us on your Monday morning. We're so excited to be bringing this new project to listeners all over the Commonwealth and beyond. And, uh, you know, we're really excited to have this as a space to talk about uh, what brings us together, what makes us different. I think, um, you know, we kind of came up with this idea as we were both going through the Sorensen Institute's Emerging Leadership Program. And we both graduated from the program about a month ago. And in the last meeting, we discussed uh, kind of how we were going to keep the themes that we've come to know and love throughout the program going. And so we kind of came up with this podcast and we're excited to see some of y'all tuning in and hopefully this grows bigger and bigger every week and we're excited to see where we can take it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking with you every week, Victoria. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Yes, we um, kind of decided to do this because we kind of felt really throughout the fellowship we were able to open up to each other and have really good conversations. And obviously that was beneficial, but we thought it should bring something new to both the political space and the media space. Um, you know, kind of my background is working in politics and I've transitioned working in the media full time. And then Jackie uh, works as a staffer in the state legislature, the House of Delegates. Um, Jackie, if you wanna kind of talk about your background a little bit for a few seconds. Yeah, so currently I am chief of staff to uh, Delegate Carrie Delaney, uh, who's a Democrat from West Fairfax County, kind of the Chantilly and Centerville area. Before that, I got my start um, in politics, knocking doors for Jennifer Wexton in 2018 midterms, uh, flipping that seat from red to blue. Since then, I've worked on um, state legislative races here in Virginia on uh, Amy Klobuchar's presidential primary in 2020. Managed my first campaign in North Carolina in 2020, um, trying to flip that seat from red to blue, and then came back home to Virginia. And I'm really glad to be back here. And um, I think Virginia is really unique in a lot of ways to stuff that I really care about. Um, you know, for all our divisiveness and, and problems that we see in the national media, um, I think Virginia really values and is able to get stuff done every year. And I like passing bills. Um, people are always like, why are you staying in this like safe blue sea where you want to work? And I was like, I like passing bills. I like, you know, actually getting stuff done. Cause like, that's what the point of our elections is, right? It's, I like to see it through and to see what it gets done. So I'm very excited um, to, you know, have met you at Sorensen and to find someone else who's as interested in kind of talking about these things as I am. So really appreciate you doing this with me. Yeah, well, I appreciate you doing it with me as well. So my background um, and, you know, something that I think is really similar with Jackie and I, and this is what you see from people that are, you know, quote unquote, top op top operatives, you know, not really trying to pat ourselves on the back here, but kind of with the breadth and dynamics of the experience that we have is as top operatives, you really end up being kind of in the quote unquote, like belly of the beast in these swing seats. Um, you know, that's where you get sent. So I've worked uh, on races in California, Kansas, Iowa. Um, and in Virginia as well, both on the political campaign side as well as C3, C4 side. So um, that's kind of something that we really see is like in these races that we've worked on, it's kind of a challenge because, you know, to say when the primary, you have to be the most Democrat or the most Republican, and yeah. then you really have to come towards the middle to win the election. And then after, when you actually get to governing, you have to, again, kind of play both elements of it. You know, you have to represent the people not only that voted for you, but those that didn't vote for you because they're still your constituents. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely a challenge. And again, I think one that we've really seen from the very opposite, but the same in our own ways way is that, again, kind of how do you balance both? Like when you're working on these targeted races, you have to 
be a very dynamic campaign, work with very dynamic candidates, and you know, kind of how does that translate over from campaigning to governing to campaigning again, and kind of throughout the cycle that we see, and we've seen a number of times, you know, I've been working full-time in politics, um, you know, first when I was in college and then now post-grad for a number of years since 2016 that was my first campaign cycle and I think you said 2018 uh was yours yeah it was my first time volunteering and then my first time kind of working in a professional it was the following year in 2019 yeah so yeah big breadth of experience that we're going to be sharing with you guys um and so you know we kind of wanted to say from Sorensen this is our takeaway that we're moving forward and hosting this podcast. Do we uh, want to talk a little bit about what Sorensen is for our listeners who might not be yeah, absolutely. familiar? Yeah, Take it away. So um, I came to know about Sorensen through my time working in the legislature, and it's a program hosted through the University of Virginia. Um, they're a Weldon Cooper Institute. Um, and essentially, the Emerging Leaders Program is designed to bring young professionals in the first 10 years of their career from all corners of the Commonwealth uh, Nova, Richmond, Hampton Roads, Southwest, every conceivable place and from every um, ideological background. And the idea is to learn more about how Virginian government works, but also to network, get to know people in different professions who can help you do different things. And also just to kind of learn how to talk to each other, um, even on things that we disagree on. So I think one of the things that I I think when people hear like kind of what they're talking about, they're like, oh, you know, you just care about keeping things civil and not really getting into it. But I found through um, our time in the program, we didn't shy away from talking about really hard stuff. Um, the point was to kind of just learn how to talk about that hard stuff as people and recognizing that there are people on the other side of the conversations, even if you have really deeply held beliefs that you don't agree on. Um, and that kind of the way our national politics is geared kind of trains you to think about them as the enemy. Um, and so um, those are the kind of values that we're hoping to bring to this podcast and why we thought it was important to keep this work going forward and not just kind of limit ourselves to those eight days that we were uh, with each other in, in Montpelier and in Richmond um, and really to take it further. And to me, one thing that really stood out really even the first weekend that we met to talk to each other within the program as we talked about something called the values tactics pyramid this isn't something that the folks at Sorensen invented but this is something they are invested in uh, kind of instilling in us as future public current and future public policy leaders is the idea that we can actually have the same values but when it comes to exercising those within policy that's where we get kind of some very different answers but if we kind of know that we are tackling a program from a set of of shared values, we are actually able to have productive conversations. And, you know, I always say like, to me, bipartisanship isn't necessarily being like a squish or, you know, on the Republican side, we call it rhinos. I'm honestly surprised you guys don't call them dinos. I think that would be kind of funny. <laughs> I feel like I've seen some like attempts at that, like um, in like job boards, I've seen like dino, like job boards and stuff. Um, but no, it's not a very commonly used term, but I think um, kind of one of the things that we were talking about on our first weekend was like the perceptions of the parties. And I think, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, Democrats have been, kind of had to become a big tent party of everybody from Joe Manchin to AOC. And so I think it's kind of hard to slap somebody with a dino label when you're talking about it from that perspective, right? Yeah, you guys, you know, at least I always see it, you know, as blue dogs, right? I think that's kind of one of the terms that I see thrown around I on your side of the aisle. I think that's probably the closest, yeah. To, to rhinos. 
Um, and I think on the Republican side, I'm, I'm going to be sharing some stats with you guys in the next few minutes, but you know, the majority of bills that we see, at least at the federal level, and this podcast, we're going to focus it more towards Virginia, but us both living in Northern Virginia and kind of a lot of our work being centered around here, we can't really ignore national and international issues yeah. because for us, you know, for Jackie, when she tries to place something in her home paper, it is the Washington Post. And for me, you know, when I write about public policy things, we have publications that I work for, but I also kind of publish outside of those. And, you know, again, for me, it's the Washington Examiner and the Washington Times. Those are kind of my local conservative outlets. I'll have a national reach. So we're going to try to tackle things from a Virginia perspective, which I think, again, naturally, as Jackie said, it lends itself to bipartisanship because Virginia, we both feel, is a very true purple state. And so public policy solutions that you come up with, they have to be bipartisan in nature or else you know, Jackie likes getting bills passed, but if those bills get reversed in the next 6, 12, 18 months, there's really no point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually something that um, in my office and, and um, with Jelly Jelly that we really value, um, you know, she was part of the Democratic trifecta um, here in Virginia in 2020 and 2021. And, um, and, and I think we did a lot of great things as part of the majority, but specifically in her office, and it was before my time, but specifically in her office, you know, she was very cognizant of the fact that Virginia is this like purple state and that we might not always have the majority, which came true just, just one term later, right? Um, and so, you know, we have our set of beliefs and stuff we're gonna work on, but I think it's really important for her and for myself to, even when we have majorities, you know, reach across the aisle so that next time we're in the minority, which I hope won't be for a very long time, but you know, no, being realistic, you know, could just be, you know, uh, in 2025, right. Um, that y'all aren't going to touch our stuff and you're going <laughs> to leave, you're going to leave it alone so that we don't have to come back and keep doing it. Um, which, you know, it does make, and I, I get why people get, um, frustrated on, on both sides. I think it does make for the optics that, you know, things move along at a snail's pace, but, um, I don't know. I just think like for me personally, um, I think that getting something done is as long as getting good policy done is the most important part. And that takes like work and kind of digging in your heels and applying all these purity tests. Um, just kind of, you're just going to end up with nothing. You're not going to get anywhere when you do that. And throughout the course of the Sorensen program, we kind of as a class, which that's the chair guys, very squeaky. Um, you know, we kind of talked about the fact that like good governance and good policymaking actually isn't very well rewarded. It's not rewarded with media attention. It's not rewarded with campaign dollars. And so we wanted to kind of make a space where we can highlight those things. Kind of one thing that we want to try to do throughout the course of having this podcast is each actually pick out kind of a win from the other side that we either liked or agreed with or something that was a bipartisan win to kind of, again, instill this idea of not everything that the other side does is, you know, out of some very deep-rooted place of just pain and suffering that they want to inflict upon the voters and the people. Um, yeah. And so I think that's, again, kind of, Right, like I know from the media side, there's really no incentive because in the media you are based on clicks, right? You want views, you want ad dollars, and you know, I've even thought, for example, like, oh, okay, well, if I worked at like a nonprofit media outlet, that would be different. But even still, you know, you have donors that you need to satisfy. And I think on the campaign side, which yeah. you can speak to a little bit better, it's definitely a very similar parallel. Yeah, it absolutely is. And 
you know, I, I look at kind of the past couple races that I've had the opportunity to manage and not just work on. And um, in 2020, you know, fundraising for that during the presidential year, and I was in North Carolina and knew there was all this excitement about flipping the, the house. Um, and, you know, in the middle of that campaign, um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And so we, we just saw all kinds of money come in from that on really, um, you know, partisan. There was really no, like, talking about. And, and, and I, think, I think part of that is also coming from, like, a non-incumbent. You kind of have to flex those muscles, right? Um, with Delegate Delaney, I think, um, I think there are a lot of folks, uh, um, donors that do value her ability to compromise and get stuff done, but it's a much smaller pool, right? Um, it's a much smaller pool of people that you have to be able to reach out to and say, you know, um, you know, donate to me because I'm effective and I get stuff done, even if that means working with the other side. Um, so it, it, it does absolutely change the incentive structures, I think, for some people, um, on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, I think you kind of have to dig in sometimes in order to just get back into office um, and say these things. And uh, I, I think that's what's really at least contributing to kind of where we're at nowadays um, with all of the, with all of the, you know, vitriol and, and hatred that we see on both sides aimed at the other. Absolutely. So I just wanted to share some stats from the federal level and these will all be linked down in the show notes that you guys can explore. And we're going to be streaming this on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. So show notes will be included with all those episodes if y'all want to kind of look at some of this data. Um, but I wanted to pull, first of all, a statistic from 2018. So this was, again, kind of pre-COVID, pre-2020. But uh, data from Quorum, which, you know, is a bill service, and legislative service at the federal level, noted that enacted bills with bipartisan support were actually at a 20-year high. Um, this was in the 115th Congress there was a statistic that nearly 70% of bills signed into law that Congress, the 115th, carried at least one Democrat and one Republican co-sponsor. And that was the highest of the past 20 years. And so that was at 68%, kind of some previous statistics, anywhere back from 1998 to 2018, there was 46%, 65%, 50%. So all kind of between that 50 and 70% range. And a hundred and 77 of those bills have been signed into law, which was the most point uh, at that point in the 115th. That was the highest point since 2008 of bipartisan or of total bills that had been signed. And that was in the Senate, in the House. It kind of looks like in the Senate, there was a little bit less of an incentive to do kind of common sense bipartisan legislation. There was a little bit higher incentive in the House. And I don't know if you kind of see some parallels with that at the state level. Yeah. So I I don't have exact statistics on it. Like organizations don't really necessarily track this at the state level. Um, but just estimating what I've seen in my past two sessions down in Richmond, I'd say 70% of our bills go through actually unanimously. So there's, um, when things get to the house floor in Virginia, you have two blocks, you have the uncontested block and you have the regular block. And about 70% of items go through this uncontested block, which means that they came out of subcommittee and out of committee with unanimous votes. Um, people, of course, have the opportunity to pull stuff out if they want to talk about it or vote against it or for whatever reason. But I'd say like that's the majority of stuff. And certainly within the past two years, 
every single bill that Virginia has passed has had to have been bipartisan, right? With a Republican House of Delegates and a Democratic Senate, there's there's no way to get something through without it being bipartisan. Um, and, you know, I, I, for what it's worth, I think that'll still be the case um, in the next two years, even with a Democratic General Assembly, we still got to get our Republican governor to sign things and not veto, right? So um, I still think you will see um, in the next two years, obviously, I think my party is probably going to push through kind of our big messaging bills and the stuff that gets people fired up, right? But the stuff, the substance stuff, I think there's going to be a lot of effort to um, work across the aisle and get stuff done. And, uh, you know, I've seen our, our speaker-elect, you know, talking about wanting a fresh slate with the, with the governor um, to, to kind of work on those priorities and get stuff done for Virginia. So... I'm hopeful that we can move forward on that part um, because, like you said, I mean, this is the majority of stuff that's getting done. Um, and and so I hope we can kind of keep that energy going forward and not let things stagnate and not get th things passed because we have a divided government. And we'll talk about the results of the elections earlier yeah. this month <laughs> in a few minutes. We definitely, I think, both have some takes that we want to share yeah. with y'all. Um, but I also kind of wanted to share that, again, this is federal statistics. Uh, fiscal note noted in January of 2022, so these were numbers up to 2021, that in terms of bills enacted with the most bipartisan support over the last decade, there was more than a thousand with the perfect score of one, which meant the same amount of Democrats and Republicans supported the legislation. And again, kind of we talked about shared goals, shared values. So again, at the federal level, they found that these were bills relating to civil rights, families and children, and crime. And I think um, at least two of the three are definitely ones that throughout the course of the Sorensen program that we as kind of even though we all had our partisan labels that we came into the program with, those were kind of, I think, some of the issues that we were able to find some consensus and common ground on in our own discussions. Yeah, some of our uh, classmates, uh, we, we do these policy projects where we kind of, they assign us groups and we work together to solve a, an issue, more or less, and propose legislation. And, one of our groups had a whole um, uh, project around reforming our judicial system, and that was brought by a Republican in the Attorney General's office and a Democrat uh, in the um, in the Commonwealth Attorney's office in Arlington. Um, so, I yeah, I definitely feel like we touched on a lot of those things and had a lot of shared values in those same in those same issue areas as you just said, yeah. And again, we kind of wanted to talk about in creating this space, we also thought it was important, both with a representative from the government side and the media side, because both of these institutions actually have all-time lows of public opinion approval. Um, and again, I think both of these spaces are not very, very often seen as working together. They're always kind of facing off. You know, as a reporter, you're always trying to get candidates and electeds to say something that'll get you a next good headline. And I think, um, you know, kind of if you want to talk from the governing side, how you view the media <laughs> in, in a short, I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about it more later on. But yeah, I mean, I love the media. I actually wish we had more of it here in Virginia. Um, you know, we're suffering, as kind of we alluded to earlier, from a, like a, a what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, kind of like a lack of local co uh, media covering what's going on in Virginia. Um, which I think kind of leads to, you know, people being uninformed, but also not being able to. So I'd actually love for more media to be present in Richmond um, because I think it's really hard to get, especially on the, the not sexy stuff, to get people to care about reporting about this. And so, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of different incentive structures around that. Um, and sometimes you also just kind of wish 
um, that people took the time to like reach out before writing their articles and saying so-and-so is unavailable for comments. Like I'd actually really love to comment on this if you give me more than 15 minutes. Um, so definitely some frustrations we have here, but um, overall I think, you know, we, you know, we care about communicating with our constituents and we rely on the media to help do us do that. Obviously you don't owe us anything and what that coverage is, but you know, we still, it's still our best way to be able to talk to our constituents en masse. Um, and so um, I think having a very strong fourth, uh, fourth wall, for, what is it, fourth pillar um, is incredibly important. Do you think your colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle would have the same assessment? I don't as know. You? Yeah. I've never talked about, we've never really talked about competing media structures with kind of my Republican friends down in, um, in Richmond, partially because we have such different ecosystems. Like working in an office that represents Nova, like most of my Nova people are also all Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. So we're all kind of, we all have the same problem up there with like you said like the Washington Post is our big one or or we have like one or two like local um cable affiliates but they also they service like the entire DMV so they're covering DC and Virginia and Maryland right whereas my Republican friends maybe have less less of an issue with that because they're in um they're in much smaller communities and they have more local papers, but you know, also readership is going down in a lot of those areas. A lot of those papers can't get out uh, to Richmond to have a beat to cover. Uh, shout out to Cardinal News, um, who does an excellent job covering Richmond for uh, Southwest and Southside. Um, but you know, when you have one publication that has the capacity to send reporters out to Richmond and cover, you know, all the issues that are important from Shenandoah all the way out to Bristol, like that's hard, right? So um, I'd imagine they'd probably say some similar things, um, although maybe in a little bit of different ways just because of the regionalism uh, differences that we experience. Well, that's a great segue <laughs> too. Uh, we found that obviously partisanship is a very strong dividing line when we talk about politics, but um, are there other divisions like regionalism that you think are stronger? Certainly in Virginia, um, and I don't know, like necessarily stronger, but certainly present, right? Um, I think that there's always kind of this uh, tension between Southwest and Nova is that I think with the way politics has become, people kind of have drawn to their corners, has become ideological, but isn't always necessarily, right? Um, I mean, like one of the first things that you and I uh, got together on um, and kind of dueled it out with our Sorensen classmates on was transportation and, and public transit. Um, and so that's an example of, I think, where sometimes uh, regionalism can be a big thing. We were even going against other Democrats in um, the area, in the area who were from other parts of the state that, um, you know, were maybe not as invested in putting uh, more public transit in because it wouldn't affect their communities uh, if we stood at the state level. So I certainly think that there's um, there are chances for that to happen, but I also, it's also like so intrinsically tied into how we've become so partisan that I think it's hard to separate those two things anymore. So let's switch a little bit to the election recap of what we saw a few weeks ago. Um, so kind of, I want to maybe start off by pointing out some bright spots for Republicans, bright spots for Democrats, and what we see this meaning for the legislative session going forward. 
Yeah, so yay! <laughs> I'm so glad to be going back in the majority. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely been a lot more work for us in the past two weeks, kind of switching gears from election day to campaigning. But, um, so there's that, that might be downside to it, but I've been told it's a lot more fun to be in the majority um, by my colleagues who were around for that democratic trifecta. Um, so bright spots there. I also obviously have to, uh, we have to talk about, you know, the election of the first black speaker of the House of Delegates. Uh, I think that's, incredibly that's groundbreaking it is you know the virginia house of delegates and the virginia general assembly is the longest operating um democracy in the western hemisphere um that we've gotten this far and we haven't kind of reckoned with our past in slavery and in jim crow and in the confederacy and that and that it's taken this long even still to kind of have that in there um, is something that really needs to be talked about. And Don Scott is going to be an incredible speaker for the House of Delegates, his personal stories. I don't know, are you familiar with uh, Speaker Scott? Go ahead and share yeah, it with, so, with the audience. Um, uh, speaker Scott, Don Scott, um, in uh, his life, you know, in the middle of law school, he got caught up on federal charges, um, made, a, made a really grave error in trafficking drugs for a friend. Um, he said he was passing them along um, and didn't know, um, you know, the friend hadn't told him what he was doing, but you know, he still made this mistake in his life and he served um, seven years, I believe it was, in prison for uh, for this. And when he came, got out, he made a, a big life change. And I believe it was um, Governor McDonald, Republican governor actually, who restored his rights and became a partner at a law firm uh, and then a, a VP there, uh, got elected to the House of Delegates and now is, is speaker-elect. And so um, very, inspiring i think um you know personal story really speaks to the idea of second chances and the american dream and obviously the first black speaker of the house is is a huge accomplishment um we also have the first uh black woman uh chair of the senate finance committee in louise lucas who is a force as i'm sure we all and probably all listeners here are familiar with and she's going to be amazing continuing to be amazing she is already amazing but she's going to continue to be amazing um, in that role. And so um, those are kind of the bright spots for me. And then I, I think just a couple other things. Um, I think of our 20 incoming Democratic freshmen, I think, I, I don't know the exact breakdowns, but um, 19 out of our 20 are um, people of color or women, which is just an incredible for the amount of diversity that's going to be coming in to the House of Delegates. And I think um, Virginians are gonna really see a House and a Senate that reflects them. And I'm really excited about that. And do you wanna speak a little bit about how that speaker vote actually came about and how maybe it might compare, contrast with what we've seen come out of yeah, D.C.? Yeah, so we have a really fun process here in Virginia. So um, as within the federal body, uh, you know, the side with the most votes gets to choose the speaker. But uh, what happened, and, and that's done in a caucus meeting, they choose their nominee, um, they vote on it, that's a secret private thing, and so I don't really have exact mechanism, you know, insights to that mechanism. But then when it gets to the floor, where it really sharply diverges from DC, is that it is a consensus speaker vote. Um, so what will happen on the first day of session is they will go in, um, 
a speaker like Scott will be nominated by a member of the Democratic caucus, and that will be seconded by a member of the Republican caucus. Um, and they usually sort that out ahead of time. Uh, it's usually a good friend of the speaker-elect. I believe it was Kathleen Murphy that seconded uh, Todd Gilbert's speakership nomination, and she said words about their friendship and um, going forward. And then the speaker is unanimously voted on um, by by the House. And I think, you know, that's really important because, you know, while we have our differences at the end of the day, it's a recognition that the the speaker is a the speaker of all Virginians um, of the people's house and also just kind of a symbolic commitment that like the speaker is here to get the work done. So. And without a speaker, there is no work that gets done. Exactly. So in Virginia, we're not wasting time. Exactly. We're not wasting taxpayer dollars on actually figuring out who the speaker is even going to be. Unlike what we saw in Washington, it'll it'll be such like. It'll be, like, this one especially will be, you know, kind of watched and historic for all the reasons that I've said before. But, like, aside from that, it'll be, like, a quick, like, five, maybe ten minute thing, depending on how long people pontificate. Um, but it'll it'll kind of be no nonsense, and then they'll get back down to the business of the day. And I think that's something that DC could maybe take a take a few notes from <laughs> <laughs> on how to how to govern and how to yeah. move public policy along. <laughs> well even though the day I think has been cast as a very dark one for Republicans with the last election um, obviously we were not successful in taking back the Senate kind of as the first point and then we weren't able to flip back the House of Delegates as well um, obviously we still have a Republican governor so again that's really I think going to promote as we've talked about the bipartisan consensus making that anything that passes out of the chambers there's no point in passing anything just for the governor to veto it um, you know I'm sure there'll be again a couple of bills just to say this is what a Democrat majority looks like and what they're going to push but you know realistically everybody's here to do a job you're very term limited in the amount of time that you have in Virginia it's you know yeah. uh, right 60 or 90 um, days it's less than that, actually. Than so that. it's 60 or 45. 60 or 45. Uh, so this upcoming session, it is a budget year. The even years are budget years. And so they give us a longer time to get the budget done. Um, and then next year, 20, well, the following session, I guess 2025, the next odd year number of session will be the shorter one of 45 days. So very not a lot of time to get stuff done for the people of the Commonwealth. No. <laughs> um, you know, Virginia is a state that has a part-time legislature, unlike in D.C., unlike, uh, you know, I think a lot of other state legislatures are part-time legislatures, which, again, I think kind of encourages movement on public policy issues. But in Virginia, I think we definitely feel that more. Um, but, you know, I want to point out some highlights for Republicans, I think. The big one was uh, Boutipier Barrage in Loudoun County is no longer the Commonwealth's attorney. Um, you know, at least how the Republicans saw it, there was a lot that she was kind of at the crux of, whether that was Loudoun County school stuff, you know, a parent being escorted out of a school board meeting and, you know, arrested and tried and, you know, then had the charges dismissed by the governor. Um, but there's a Republican Commonwealth attorney in Loudoun, and I think the sheriff over there is going to be a little bit happier to have a Commonwealth attorney working with that is a Republican. Um, but also talking about representation, I think, uh, so, you know, I'm very involved with the young Republicans. Jackie's very involved with the young Democrats. I know we spent numerous weekends going out and supporting candidates over the past few months. 
Um, and so for us, uh, some wins that we love being a part of any way that we could. Um, Tara Durant is now in the Senate. Emily Brewer is now in the Senate. You know, those are two women that I think have a uh, track record that they're going to be bringing with them from the House of Delegates of, again, kind of willing to work um, kind of across the aisle. Um, and then another bright spot for us is Ian Lovejoy is going to be joining the NOVA delegation as a representative or sorry, it's a delegate, because we call them the House of Delegates here in Virginia. Better than when we call them the House of Burgesses, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the title would be in the House of Burgesses. A, a Burgess, just one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, again, I think we really can't lose the fact that actually there was some wins on both sides. And uh, another one, shout out Pat Harity, Team Harity. I know I have some good friends there. Um, in Fairfax County, uh, I personally went out and knocked doors in his district. Um, you know, redistricting affected everybody from the House of Delegates down to the lower uh, races. And so Pat Harity is still the lone Nova Republican kind of at his level. So he's still carrying the banner. Um, but actually, you know, again, kind of talking about media, he was actually endorsed by media outlets saying that, you know, he he should keep his seat because he's done a good job. Um, and I know that was something that I saw when I was out knocking. Uh, you know, again, his district changed a little bit. We actually knocked in a precinct that was new to him. Um, and so we kind of saw even people that had never actually been represented by him, they knew of his track record. And so they were already willing to go out and support him just based on that. Um, and so again, you know, just being the lone Republican in a sea of Democrats, that still, uh, you know, you can still have a reputation that's very favorable to your electorate, but even people that, you know, are kind of new to learning about you. And so I think um, that's kind of another thing that we want to talk about is again, bipartisanship, obviously, I think very often gets painted in a negative light, but really there's there's always going to be really some instance where you have to work in a bipartisan manner whether you know say you're even if your entire local elected board is all democrats and you need something from your house of delegates member or your federal representative and they're of the opposite party like you have to go in there and kind of obviously still have your partisan label but bring that in again in a way that's not kind of combative and say you know these are the values that we want to work on and how can we work together on them um and so i think Obviously, again, I think in Virginia, we're forced to do that a little bit more than in some other states. But, you know, again, I think there's some localities that even if you are completely outnumbered with one party or another, you will still have somebody that is that other voice on the other side. And so we need to promote being able to, to listen to that. And, you know, again, they were elected the same way that anybody else was. And so their constituents are expecting to see that from them. Um, and if we just shut them out and shut them down, I think that is really a kind of a, a downside, um, not really what our democrat democratic process is supposed to be. Yeah. And I just will say on that last point, so uh Delegate Millenies District actually does have a few Springfield precincts within it. So um we were obviously working really hard. Uh now Albert Vega was an incredible candidate. Um I'm I'm very disappointed that we won't have his voice on things like housing affordability in the area. Um, but I will say, you know, uh, to, to the, I guess my bright spot, although I had something else to share for Republicans. You can share more. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Supervisor Harity's office has always been helpful when, uh, our Springfield constituents reach out with questions that may be better answered by his office. Um, so his office has always been helpful and, um, you know, hopefully that we can continue that relationship with him going forward. Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to add as a part of our election recap? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think the one thing that stood out to me, you know, 
is that, and kind of in having conversations with just how close everything was, you know, um, I, I, you know, what I said earlier about, you know, wanting to do legislation, you know, that lasts regardless of the majority, I think it's now more important than ever. Um, I mean, some of these seats were won by what, 70 votes, um, you know, and, and, and there's slim majorities. And I, and I think, you know, that we need to, both sides kind of, if they want to keep a majority or take a majority in the future, um, you know, it prevents us, I guess, from going to the far extremes because I think Virginia has said very clearly that that's not what they prefer. Um, and so that kind of, that, that's kind of what kind of stands out to me, um, is just kind of how close some of these majorities were, how close these seats were. I think, you know, obviously I think we have the better message, um, on the Democratic side. And I think that, uh, won out this past November, but, uh, we obviously need to keep talking to people about it and sharing that around, um, because it can come down to these really close margins. Yeah, I think the overall number statewide was about 2,000 votes. I think the that's number right, that yeah. Seen, yeah. Um, so again, I think that really speaks to that. And kind of the other thing that we want to make sure people remember is this was the off-off year election. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we were talking to voters, I think there was a very different subset of voters that we were talking to. Uh, sorry, I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> right here, hold on, sorry. You're good. Cut that. So I want to remind folks that this was the off-off year election. So I think kind of even when it came down to doors and targeting, there was a very certain subset of voters that we were trying to reach to get them out yeah. to the polls. Some voters were um, kind of willing to go out that maybe hadn't gone out before. But I think, again, these types of elections only bring out a certain type of voters. So Yeah. And to that point, you know, I think... You know, once you look at some, I was looking at some numbers today and turnout was really, really low in some of these areas that didn't have competitive seats. You know, there are only a few competitive seats because of our new maps. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk about why that is and whether that's good or not. I know I've talked to some people who would have preferred, you know, more competitive maps um, so that there's more competition. But, you know, you have to weigh things like compactness and I don't want to get into a whole redistricting conversation. But, I, you know all of this money and I think we should get into that in some episodes like millions and millions of dollars were spent on what turned out to be 2,000 votes and it's just you know I don't know where I'm really going. I don't know exactly how I feel about that I mean obviously the money in our politics is that I feel very negatively about we need to do something about campaign finance reform and um uh prevent that kind of stuff but um you know just the idea that all of this attention is going to be focused on a couple areas um, of the Commonwealth, the more competitive ones, um, and turning out, making sure people turn out and are aware of that. And um, yeah, it's going to be a big challenge for both parties, I think, in the at least the next decade until the next. We'll see what the new maps in twenty thirty, I guess, bring. But um, for the next, for the for the twenty twenties, it's going to be um, expensive and <laughs> competitive in a very parts of the Commonwealth. So talking, I think the money really does give us some answer of what the new map looks like means for governing moving forward. Um, but can you kind of talk a little bit about the shift of balance, the balance of power? Um, 
obviously we talked a little bit about across the parties, but maybe even within the parties, you know, who are some of these potential committee chairs going to be? What does seniority look like, right? I think um, yeah. at the state level, you know, there's a lot of resignations. We're seeing it, I think, really day by day at the federal level come out as well, that I think a lot of the people that are in office are tired and yeah. they're having to answer for things that they really maybe had very little to do with. And so they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving. Somebody else yeah. can take the seat. Um, but what does that what does that look like for governing? Yeah, so um, because of this year's uh, redistricting, I think we what I what I heard was we collectively lost six hundred years of institutional knowledge, um, and so some of the things that you know I'll be concerned about in watching is just the effect um, of outside interest groups um, trying to state their claims, and um, you know this is. There's a lot of groups that you know I'm very friendly with, and I they have a lot of experience on it. It's not about their money or anything, but it's about like their experience on how policy impacts the people that they represent. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to like trash talk and um, you know talk down about anybody here, but you know I do think that you know the idea that these unelected people would have this much influence over uh, our system is concerning, and so that's something I'll be watching. Um, as well, I know, you know, at least on, on our side of things in the House and the Democratic side, you know, there will be a lot of working with our new members to make sure they're up to speed and know how the thing, the things, uh, how the, how just the building functions, honestly. Um, you know, there's new member orientation this past week, so they're already getting a jump on that. Um, in terms of chairships, I, I think a lot of the people, at least uh, for the House Democrats, um, you know, a lot of our former chairships, I think, have stayed around. So I think, you know, you'll see some very similar things um, as to, you know, the last time we had the majority, um, obviously with with new leadership at the very top and Speaker Scott. Um, the House, uh, the or I'm sorry, the Senate Democrats actually have released their chair assignments already. I have it up if we want to go through them. Sure. Yeah, so in agriculture, uh, that will be a chairing that will be Senator Dave Morrison. Commerce and Labor will be chaired by Senator Curry Deeds. Uh, Education and Health, chaired by Senator Ghazala Hashmi. Finance and Appropriations, as I mentioned, uh, chaired by Senator Louise Lucas. General Laws and Technology by Senator Adam Eben. Uh, Senator Scott Serval will be uh, chairing Judiciary. Local Government, chaired by Senator Jeremy Pike. Uh, Senator Aaron Rouse, and I think this is a big one, it will be chairing Privileges and Elections. So if you remember, Senator Rouse came in on a special election this past year. Now he's already up and chairing uh, a committee uh, after his very first session. So he has, I guess, really impressed our uh, Senate leadership um, with, his, uh, with his record and his, uh, his skills. Senator Bar Barbara Favola will be chairing Rehabilitation and so Social Services. Rules, the Very Powerful Rules Committee, chaired by Senator Mamie Locke, and Transportation by Senator Jennifer Boisco. Um, so I think, you know, that list kind of, you know, is probably, I think, almost every returning <laughs> senator with seniority, which I suppose makes sense with the breakup, uh, with the breakdown of um, things. But, you know, I think we're going to see some really focused, the biggest thing that jumps out to me um, will be, I think, Senator Surville chairing judiciary. Um, I think we'll, we'll see a big shift. And, and of course, like I mentioned earlier, um, finance and appropriations by 
um, Senator Lucas, but in judiciary, I think, you know, we had some of maybe our, you know, more blue dog uh, conservative members like Senator um, Edwards chairing this in the past, who was from, I believe, the Roanoke area. I'm, my geography is not as great as it should be for Virginia. But, um, and so, um, but going to a more, I think, progressive member from NOVA. So I think we're going to see a lot of interesting things happen in Senate Judiciary this year. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Senator Rouse there with one of the elections. Um, has there been a little bit of a more balanced shift now with some of the new members or, you know, new or second time uh, electeds from, you know, say the Virginia Beach area? I think obviously Democrats have traditionally been very dominant in Dova, at least, you know, yeah. for the memorable uh, past that we can think of. Um, but is there a little bit of that shift? I know that's where kind of some of the key pickups were, were down in the Hampton Roads area. So how do you think that affects kind of the priorities of the legislature? I think it goes to just demonstrating that uh, we need to be a party that's focused on all areas of our state. Um, and, and certainly in areas like the Hampton Roads and Virginia Beach, where um, it's A, like you said, more competitive, but be home to a big section of our base, um, to be to be quite frank. Um, and you know, it's just a recognition there. I don't see, you know, Nova being uh, like left out of the conversation. You know, uh, Senator Saravel is majority leader in the Senate. Um, you know, in the House, you have two of the three elected membership uh, positions in, in Delegate Her Charnel Herring and Delegate Kathy Tran. Um, the House appropriation, House Appropriations will be chaired by Delegate Luke Torian from Prince William. So I don't see, you know, I, I've heard there's like a lot of gossip and, you know, worry from some people in NOVA that, you know, our power is diminishing and we'll get, I don't see that, honestly, but I do see a, a, a recognition of the diversity um, of the state and, you know, saying that we as Democrats need to focus on everyone. We can't just be focused on one region of the state and, and we need to have a leadership and a chairship structure that reflects the diversity that Virginia is home to. Yeah, what do you take away? I'm like, from the other side, like, what do you take away from that list that I just read off and like all of these shifts? I, I've never, I haven't heard it really being talked about from the Republican perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's no. just been how Democrats Nova are reacting to all of it. <laughs> Um, well, again, you know, I think, uh, like, Delegate Lovejoy in particular, I think he's going to add some Republican balance or Republican voice to the NOVA delegation. I think that, again, we wanted to play competitively in as many seats as we could, and mm -hmm. I think we saw that from y'all's side as well. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think really over the past five or so years, we've seen a lot of people engaging in the political process that aren't traditionally involved, and I think that that's good and I hope that those people stay involved because that's kind of one thing that I always say is, you know, if you, and like I, I did some kind of interviews and things from my perspective as a Virginian, as a Republican, literally the day after election, like 12 hours yeah. after polls close, you know, 7 a.m. Wednesday morning. I was asleep. <laughs> yeah, people were like, wow, that's like the hardest radio that you can do is come up with how do Republicans fix messaging for the next 12 months right after you know, we lost the majority yeah. um, in one chamber and didn't pick up the other. But, um, you know, I talked about, like, at the end of the day, I know that I did my part. Like, I covered the stories that I wanted to in my spare time as, you know, why our uh, leader of our local group here in Arlington and as a state board member and a national board member. 
um, you know, we went out, we did our job, like we knocked in the districts that we wanted to knock in. And so at the end of the day, like elections, you win, you lose. But I think if you participated, you're already a step above or really several steps above the people that just want to sit on Twitter and complain that I've never knocked a door or donated a dollar to a candidate that they care about. And I think that's a takeaway, um, really, I think that people on both sides have. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think part of, um, you know, my party's aims uh, is certainly since uh, former President Trump was elected um, was, you know, that very thing is to bring out, you know, new people and keep them involved. And I, I think you see that, you know, uh, from our 2017 wave, our 2019 um, taking out, you have a lot of delegates who were never involved in politics in their lives or moms and you know, uh, dads, of course, and, um, you know, people at their PTA, you know, was maybe the extent of their political, which honestly, I feel like there's, we, maybe we'll discuss this another time, I feel like there's more politicking and, like, division going on at the PTA level than anywhere else. Um, PTA sports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just, you know, people that were, like, involved in, in with, in within their communities, um, and, and, and have stuck around, um, it, both at the elected level, but then the people that they bring along with them. And I think that's been really um, just amazing and inspiring to see. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, belly aching, I think, about turnout. And I certainly agree, you know, that low turnout in these off-off year elections are a problem. But I think it was still something to the tune of like 40% turnout. Um, statewide, uh, over 50 in some of these more competitive races. And I mean, when we were talking about even 10 years ago, when we were talking about 25, maybe like 29 is a high watermark point turnout. Um, you know, like that's insane. We should not be electing people with that low turnout. And so I think there's a lot of work still left to do, but I'm really inspired by how far we've come in such a short period of time. And um, I'm, it keeps me motivated to keep going out and doing it. It definitely does for me as well. I know that we saw it on our side in, in the Trump years, and we'll do an episode, I think, in a few months, uh, specifically about the Iowa caucus, because we were both <laughs> there in 2020, um, which we've really gotten to know. The last Democratic Iowa caucus. Last one for you guys, you know, obviously lost uh, one with both parties for us, so yeah. we definitely have some perspectives to share with y'all in a future episode, so stay tuned. Um, but, you know, we definitely saw it again, just doing things like voter registration, people that, yeah. you know, were 65, 70 years old and had not voted in 50 years or more of yeah. their lives, um, that really realized and were inspired by the fact that, you know, there was somebody that hadn't had a 50 year, uh, kind of track record within the political process, being able to go out and be elected president of the United yeah. States. And I think that's really trickled down to, um, you know, even some of the people I mentioned before, like Delegate Durant, or now Senator Durant, but, um, you know, she yeah. was elected as a delegate first. And then, you know, even talking about like the Virginia Beach area, one person that I've followed and covered for a while is obviously a Congresswoman down there, Jen Kiggins, you know, she was mm -hmm. in the military, she was a mom, she was a nurse and, you know, again, very involved in her community, but first to the Senate and then to Congress. And so I think we really see again, as you said, people on both sides realizing yeah. that politics is for them. Yeah, and you saying that just also, I wanted to shout out all of the students who came out on election day this year. We saw huge amounts of uh, first time registrants at colleges all across 
um, but specifically in the Williamsburg and Roanoke areas. Um, William, William and Mary and um, Virginia Tech had a large turnout. And I, I can't speak to the Republican operations, but shouting out on our side, I know people working hard on the Montanesen, Jess Anderson, Trish White Boyd, and Lily Franklin just did an incredible job of reaching out to young people and bringing them as part of the political process. And even though uh, none of those races went our way, um, I, I hope those students um, know how valuable their participation was and they keep they keep at it. And it's, it's our job as the party to keep them involved. Um, and and I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm excited to do it. So um, I think I think those those are the things that keep me going in this work because yeah, we both really got involved campaign side kind of in our college years so you know i think it was yeah. people in the roles that we are and now again reaching back reaching out to the next generation and telling people that yes like you can be involved you should be involved here's how um and you know again kind of throughout the podcast we definitely want to talk about that just kind of our own background in politics how we encourage people to get involved um but i think unless yeah. you want to do our our closer here it's a fun one well, I think we we did miss out. So, what is uh, what is one thing on the uh, from a Democrat that you uh, want to highlight this week as the spirit of bipartisanship or something that people should like to emulate? And then I'll do mine for the Republican side. Well, uh, I was pretty happy that Buttigieg Burge finally conceded her race. So, so mine's kind of similar um, <laughs> on the same vein. Um, I was really impressed by uh, current Speaker Gilbert's. Uh, statement on uh, Don Scott's uh, election to be speaker. I thought that was very classy of him. Um, and I think it's important to kind of like the peaceful transfer of power. Um, so shout out to Yuta Vibarai and Todd Gilbert for their uh, classy concessions. Classy concessions. There we go. <laughs> All right. Now, final one. Now, if you guys are following on us on Instagram, make sure you are because we kind of tease our episodes. We'll hopefully be featuring upcoming guests and things like that in the future. But we posted kind of just fun get to know you things for both of us. So um, I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan. I went to college in Kansas. And, uh, and I grew up in the Philly suburbs. So I'm a huge uh, Philly sports fan. Eagles, go birds, let's go. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's really no better time to start this podcast than now and have it out Monday, tomorrow. The eve of our rematch. Our rematch from the Super Bowl. <laughs> so I have the official uh, odds here from ESPN. So right now it's given us as the Chiefs a 60.5% uh, chance to win, and it's giving the Eagles a 39.2%. I couldn't be happier with those odds. I don't think my boys do better than when we are the underdogs. Um, so uh, as 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 my boy Jason Kelsey once said, uh, hungry dogs gotta eat. And so um, I'll take those odds. I have full faith in the Eagles. I have full faith in this team to pull out a win even with odds stacked against now, us. Now, you're also Swifty. <laughs> yes. So yes. is that changing your loyalties at all? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been exposed more, I guess, to Travis Kelsey in the past uh, couple months with all of the, all of the attention he and, and Taylor have garnered. Um, and he's a great guy. And, and 
it don't, uh, if anybody from Philadelphia is listening to this, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I do have, I do have to say, I have, I do have a bit of a soft spot for the Chiefs. Um, you know, Andy Reid was our coach for a very long time, and I, it, I can't find it within me necessarily to be mad when things go well for him. So it's not changing my view all too, <laughs> all too much. Um, still an Eagles fan through and through, but I'm not, I'm not as vitriolic to the Chiefs as. Some other uh, uh, teams I could mention, Dallas and New England. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, guys, be sure to check us out on all the platforms where this will be posted. So that'll be YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So catch us there. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, on LinkedIn. We're getting some good engagement over there. Awesome. Um, and we'll be posting our weekly episodes. And again, hopefully things like guest features, getting our guest networks involved. Um, we are planning to shoot this on Sundays, so I know that might affect our guests a little bit, but if you guys are willing to share a couple of hours of your Sunday with us, uh, please reach out. We have kind of some topics that we want to cover in the future. Um, Jackie, I don't know if you wanted to share maybe kind of a shout out to the audience if anybody considers themselves an expert or two in any of these areas. Yeah, if you have, um, expertise on, you know, just, uh, getting legislation passed or honestly any of the, the hot topic issues in our area we want to talk education you want to talk uh health care funding um, those have been some pretty hot topics so i would love to have you on um or just talking about like working in politics in general um it I'm starting to a point where I meet like a lot of folks in college or we visit high schools as part of, you know, going out and being involved in the community. And, you know, I hear I have folks asking me how to get a job in politics. And there's a lot of answers to that question. So I think we would like to be able to share just for maybe anybody who's looking to make um, a career shift or a way or starting their careers out and want to get involved just to share all of the different ways that people um can be involved in this um, professionally or not. Volunteering is great too. If you don't have, if you don't have it in you, or if you really like your career and just want to find, do this as a hobby. Like, there's so many ways you can do it. So we'd love to talk to you about that as well. Absolutely. Well, with that, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Looking forward to hearing all of you guys' thoughts on the episode, and we will see you next week. See you next week. Thanks, Bye, guys. guys.